Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. Thanks for listening. I haven't had a program for several weeks now, and uh, during that time, my wife and I went away with a group of people to visit Germany for eight days. Now, under normal circumstance, I wouldn't find any particular interest in visiting Germany. When I came on Aliyah back in 1969, I drove from Paris to Strasbourg, and from Strasbourg, I drove down to Switzerland. So I actually spent two hours driving in Germany. And a number of years ago, I changed planes in Frankfurt. And that's the only time I ever visited Germany. I had no particular reason to visit. But now, we went to the group of people in which we were primarily involved in Jewish history in Germany. It was uh, quite interesting just to cover a couple of the things. We visited the city of Worms, which is, has the reconstructed old shul that Rashi also lived. We went to Worms, to the grave of the Maharam of Rottenburg. We, we, we went to Mainz. We went to Erfurt, E-R-F-U-R-T, which is the largest and best-preserved medieval synagogue and a mikveh, which is like 20 meters down below the surface. Uh, we were in Leipzig, and we went to Potsdam, and uh, we visited a lot of Jewish cemeteries, and uh, we visited a new synagogue, the Berlin Wall Memorial, when we got to Berlin, and uh, it was very nice because almost all the meals we had with the Chabad, and uh, one of the places that we visited was the Wannsee Mansion, which is the place near Berlin where the final solution was planned. And uh, so that was, it's very interesting. It was very emotional, actually, for a Jew coming from the state of Israel to visit the place where the final solution was planned by the Nazis. Now, I, I want to make a few comments uh, I was very moved by the visit, primarily to Jewish uh, sites, but also Berlin, where the Nazis were in power. And by the way, Berlin is a large, uh, beautiful city. There's more than three million inhabitants. There have been many cultural changes and many undermining the core values of our civilization. And they come with astonishing swiftness and they alter even the foundational institutions like marriage in the family today. By the way, um, in, in Germany, in particular in Berlin, where there were, uh, we saw a tremendous number of youth, and uh, there were a very large number of Germans, a long line of Germans visiting the Jewish Museum. And at Buchenwald, the concentration camp, we were told by the guide that they bring large numbers of German youth there to try to teach them. So 
It, all of this has got me to thinking about something that was written by Heinrich Heine. Heinrich Heine was a 19th century German who was Jewish who converted. Now, he, Heine predicted in 1834 when, it, when what would come to pass a hundred years later in the 1930s and the 1940s in Germany. The question is, how could a man in 1834 have foreseen the rise of violent totalitarians and the plunging of Europe into vicious tyranny? Uh, and he predicted this a hundred years sooner. Uh, so he, he had a prophecy. After I came back from the trip, I looked up what he had to say. And this, this is what Heinrich Heine wrote in 1834, 99 years before the Nazis came into power. He wrote the following. It's a long quote, but I think it's worthwhile who bear, bears listening to. He wrote the following. Christianity, and this is its greatest merit, has somewhat mitigated the brutal German love of war, but it could not destroy it. Should that subduing talisman, the cross, be shattered, the frenzied madness of the ancient warriors, that insane berserk rage of which the Nordic bards have spoken and sung so often, will once again burst into flame. The cross, Christianity, is fragile, and a day will come when it will collapse miserably. Then the ancient stony gods will rise from the forgotten debris and rub the dust of a thousand years from their eyes. And then Thor, with his giant hammer, will jump up and smash the Gothic cathedrals. Do not smile at my advice, the advice of a dreamer who warns you against the Kantians, the Fichtians, and the philosophers of nature. Do not smile at the visionary who anticipates the same revolution in the realm of the visible that has already taken place in the realm of the spirit. <coughs> Thought precedes action as lightning precedes thunder. German thunder is of true Teutonic nature. It's not nimble, but rumbles ponderously. Yet it will come. And when you hear a crashing, such as never before has been heard in the history of the world, then you will know that the German thunderbolt has fallen. And that uproar, the eagles at that uproar, the eagles of the air will drop dead. The lions in remotest deserts of, deserts of Africa will hide in their royal dens. A play will be formed in Germany which will make the French Revolution look like an incident ideal. That is what Heinrich Heine wrote 100 years before Hitler. Now, try to imagine in 1834, for seeing something worse than the French Revolution, with all the bloodshed of the terror and the guillotine, 
the mass madness and the mass murder, the mind-dumbing inhumanity. Yet, Heine said that the day would come when the abolition of the Christian worldview, the destruction of the biblical and natural law, understanding of humanity, of human nature, of the human good, of human dignity, of human destiny, would result in something, something terrible, really, that would make the French Revolution look like an innocent ideal, which is exactly, of course, what Hitler and the Nazis did in Germany and across Europe. They had brought Teutonic virtues, pagan virtues, and even especially reviving ancient pagan symbols and ancient practices and rituals. They essentially subdued the cross and they smashed the cathedrals. Now, of course, Heine didn't identify someone named Hitler or a party called the Nazis, but he foresaw that something like them would arise. His key insight was that he understood what happens in the domain of the invisible, in the minds, the hearts, and the souls of people. Eventually, it plays itself out in the realm of the visible. Thought precedes action as lightning precedes thunder. So, it's interesting, by the way, uh, one of the things that, one of the places that we visited is a place called Grunwald Station. It's a memorial site near Berlin. It's called the Gleist Memorial Site, G-L-E-I-S. And there, uh, there are, are um, a, there's a box of book, books placed and, uh, and were burned, burned last week. Uh, the uh, last week, in, after we had visited Berlin, uh, uh, it was noted in the newspapers that a box of books had been placed near that site and burned. And the what was burned was educational books on the rise of fascism. Now, at that place, the at Grunwald Station, there was a memorial for 50,000 Jews with the date and destinations to where they were sent. There's 186 steel commemorative plates, plaques placed there with the, with the number of Jews that were taken away each day to, to their deaths from this train station, the Grunwald Station, near the city of Berlin. So it was very moving to be there and to see that. Now, after we came back, it turns out that someone went there and placed a number of books and uh, educational works on the rise of fascism, burned them, and wrote uh, anti-Semitic comments in the area. And this was done just last week uh, after we left. So it brings to mind what Heinrich Heine wrote uh, more than a uh, hundred years ago. It's interesting, by the way, 
As preparation for our trip to Germany, I read a book called The Pity of It All by Amos Alone, and it describes Jewish life in Germany, starting uh, with the year, starting with the year, it's a history of Jews in Germany from 1743 to 1933, 190 years, and the uh, as usually as it's usually told, the story of the German Jews starts at the end, what happened during the time of Hitler's Reich. Now what Amos Lone did in his book, and it was very important that I read it before we uh, we took the trip, he essentially describes a hundred and fifty year period of tremendous achievement and integration of the Jewish community in Germany and it's reached its peak and pretty much of a uh, golden age. Now, what happened was they were a successful community of writers and uh, entrepreneurs and poets and musicians and philosophers and scientists and publishers and political activists. Uh, they were the flower of secular Europe, the Jews of Germany. That included Moses Mendelssohn, uh, who, whose grave we saw, uh, Heinrich Heine himself, uh, people like uh, uh, Hannah Aaron, any of all these people, and it's 150 years of, uh, I'm sorry, it's 190 years of the growth of the Jewish and success of the Jewish community in Germany. And it all disappeared within a few months when Hitler came to power, which is something now, as we, my wife and I and other people on the trip, walked around and saw the development of Germany to the present day. And then a few days after we got back to Israel, Someone had performed an anti-Semitic act. It's it's kind of scary. It really is. The uh, w what we're seeing in the streets now, and perhaps more broadly in the culture, from the school, from the including the schools and the universities, and the news media. Uh, there is there's not something called woke woke. Uh, there's an, there is an ideology, a set of beliefs, perhaps you can call it a worldview, a way of looking and interpreting a world that's all been in place in the minds and the hearts of many people, people who, who shape opinions and people who influence society. Now it's being played out in the realm of the visible. The, uh, now, the... It's it's scary what is happening now. The uh, transformations in the intellect, in the mind, in the heart, in the spirit, have has been good, good as well as bad. So I think there are a lot of bad ideas around today, and uh, the idea is to provide the proper education so that good ideas will prevail. It was really scary to me, quite honestly, as I mentioned a few moments ago, 
In a few days after coming back from Germany, this anti-Semitic act would occur at one of the places that we had visited. So uh, the this means that there really is a job ahead of us. Thank God, for example, that there, there are active Jewish communities and many who support the uh, the fight against anti-Semitism. Thank God there is a state of Israel which has its own problems, which I'll discuss uh, uh, later. But um, to see a society that went from really nothing in 1743, when the Jews were uh, were uh, just a small uh, businessman, perhaps, and uh, and they they ended up becoming the major intellectual group in Germany. As a matter of fact, it's interesting when Moses Mendelssohn entered Berlin in 1743. He had to come to a gate reserved for Jews and cattle, and he went on to become the German Socrates. The uh, Heinrich Heine, who I quoted a moment ago, uh, uh, he became baptized as the admission ticket to European culture. And now, uh, it's, and Jews were extremely successful, yet when the Nazis came to power, it all disappeared within months, within months. We checked the historical record from the moment that Hitler came into power until laws were passed against Jews was only a matter of months. So as far as Germany is concerned, their civilization is much lighter than one would like to, uh, to think. As a matter of fact, uh, I, I want to say a few more things about this, but uh, I'm coming uh, to the end of this uh, section of my uh, program, so I'll hold off to the next section because I want to talk a little bit about what's happening now, particularly in Europe. It's kind of frightful when you study and learn the history of Germany over a period of 190 years how it can all end so suddenly, it's really scary. It really is. So you have to wonder what ha what is happening today. Uh, I'll say a few more things about it at the uh, next portion of the program. In the final analysis, by we had a wonderful trip, a very thoughtful one, and uh, just visiting a place like where the final decision was made to, do, to essentially kill the Jews and to visit there as a citizen of the state of Israel. It's a very, very moving uh, experience and one I'm really glad I went uh, with my wife and had because it, it, it will remain in my mind. And uh, it's, uh, it, it is something that shows, I guess in a sense, I, although it sounds strange to say it, it's something I think that helps to prove that there is a God. What happened, what's happening at a particular moment is not finality. 
as dangerous it can be and as costly it can be to the Jewish people, it shows that time can 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 cure, and it more than ever shows the necessity of an independent state of Israel where Jews can go, no questions asked. I'll be back after the break. Want real answers to the big questions of life? Who am I? Why am I here? How can I find lasting happiness? If God is good, why is the world so bad? Don't miss Soul Talk with Rabbi David Aaron. Revealing, inspiring, empowering. Thursdays on Israel News Talk Radio. You're back with Jay Shapiro. In the previous segment of the program, I spoke about my recent visit to Germany and uh, what I learned there and the fact that uh, after I came back, uh, the reports of anti-Semitic actions that had occurred in Germany just last week. So I want to say a few words about anti-Semitism because the fascist anti-Semitism, the Nazi anti-Semitism was anti-Semitism on the right. Now there is a growing anti-Semitism from the left. A report was put out last week by the Anti-Defamation League in the United States. The report is called Anti-Semitism and Radical Anti-Israel Bias on the Political Left in Europe. Now, the report doesn't uh, contain hard data and it doesn't have statistics, which is really uh, something really missing in a report, but it reflects uh, trends that are er observed within the political discourse uh, and the European cultures. In other words, apparently they keep a record of what's being said, what's written in the newspapers, and what's being said in the uh, European uh, governments, and they draw conclusions from that. The, uh, they, they, uh, before that, they uh, did research, real research, and they found that the they measured the percentage of the population of various countries who hold anti-Semitic views. And for example, Spain was 26%, France 17%, Germany 12%, and the United Kingdom at 10%. So this report put out by the ADL indicates the uh, there is anti-Semitism on the left, and uh, in all the four European countries, th- primarily by means of uh, essentially uh, describing Israel in bad ways, and also its anti-capitalist sentiment. Socialism is fairly strong in Europe. The uh, so the, what is happening is that the Jewish communities in Europe 
are facing a challenge of growing anti-Semitism on the left. Now, there's all kinds of uh, theories about the Jews that are the basis of anti-Semitism. They're not new. The, uh, but in the, in the United Kingdom, for example, the, uh, there's a group called the Labor Against the Witch Hunt. And what it does is twist justified accusation of anti-Semitism into a sinister plot. And they say the Zionist movement is conspiring perhaps to take over the world. So the BDS, the boycott group, is very strong in all places. Uh, Spain, which has a very small Jewish population. So in Germany, which we just visited, Israel is the primary reason for modern anti-Semitism. Even left-wing political parties are generally quick to denounce anti-Semitism because the Germans feel a certain responsibility for the the Holocaust. And I got this impression, by the way, by uh, particularly when we visited Buchenwald and uh, what the person who took us around, the guide, was someone who, uh, a non-Jew, who teaches German students about anti-Semitism and how dangerous it can be. The uh, an anti-BDS uh, resolution was passed back in May of 2019 in the Bundestag, the, uh, the German Congress, and it uh, de- denounced anti-Israel boycott movements as anti-Semitic. Unfortunately, the, they're gaining, anti-Semitism is gaining in Europe. My feeling is based on the growing Muslim population there, a very large number of, uh, of uh, people from Muslim countries came into Europe over the last 40 years, primarily to work. The Europeans decided they didn't want to work anymore. They let these, these uh, people from the Middle Eastern countries and from Africa come to Europe and do the work for them. In the meantime, that population grew immensely. There are areas, for example, in uh, Paris, where uh, they're controlled by the, these Muslims, where the police don't even bother to go in. So that, that, the things in Europe are changing. After the Second World War, I think there was a, a problem of uh, the, the European conscience allowing the Jews to be killed during the Second World War. But that, that was 80 years ago. So the, the, the conscience, the European conscience has pretty much become clear since then. And there's room now for anti-Semitism. Uh, and also, there is a strong hatred among certain groups toward the state of Israel. The uh, Oh, in recent years, for example, like May Day demonstrations include um, far-right uh, vigils for victims of the of what of Israel in support of the Palestinians. 
the terror attacks against Israelis, Israelis are celebrated as anti-imperialistic and anti-colonialist resistance. The, uh, they, they call for Israel to be wiped off the map because Israel uh, imposes its will upon us, uh, the Palestinians. The, uh, so this increased anti-Zionist rhetoric the, uh, also includes the, uh, the false charge that Israel is a colonial state. The, uh, the, the attacks on Zionism lead to discrimination against Jews. Now, what's happened is that a lot of Jews are being excluded from progressive movements, and that's a symptom of a bad trend. The anti-Semitism in Europe shows what what could spread around the world. So there are some governments, like the British government, that are attacking this growing anti-Semitism, but the fact remains that it is growing. This has been shown by the report by the ADL, and it's something that we have to be aware of. Having said that, I want to go on to another topic, a uh, totally different topic, uh, which relates to what's happening here in Israel. You know, there have been a lot of protests against the government uh, because it wants to change uh, some the strength of the judicial here in Israel. I don't want to go into the details. It's a little bit complicated. But there are people who feel that the people in the government today who feel that the judicial uh, section of the government has become uh, too too heavy. It, has, it carries too much weight, and uh, therefore it has to be reduced. And there are people who are opposed to this reduction. <clears throat> so there, if people have taken to the streets. Matter of fact. I live in Jerusalem, and there are demonstrations all the time, particularly on Saturday night. Thousands of people are in the streets waving um, Israeli flags. I read a report the other day that the people opposed to the judicial reform, various organizations, have imported something like 400,000 Israeli flags from China to be used in the demonstrations. So uh, one of the problems is that earlier this year, opponents of the government, including groups of protesters from elite units in the Army and the Air Force, like the 8200 Intelligence Unit, threatened they would stop volunteering for reserve duty. Now, needless to say, the Secretary of uh, the Minister of Defense came out against that, and uh, the number of reservists declined to report for duty for political reasons was pretty small. But very fact, the uh, that calls to refuse orders to serve reserve duty are really dangerous. For example, hundreds of members of Israel's cyber attack unit say they will not serve and naval commandos joined these threats. 
Now, <clears throat> these calls to shirk reserve duty are highly dangerous and they're potentially destructive. And as someone was quoted about uh, three weeks ago, uh, his, his name is Tzachi Anegbi. Tzachi Anegbi is in the government. He's the National Security Advisor, and uh, he spoke in the Knesset Foreign Affairs and Defense Committee about a month ago, and he said the following, that he was once the leader of a protest movement that used extreme tactics back in 1982. I remember that, by the way, because I was involved. For 23 it's when Israel said they're going to leave Sinai and do away with the city of Yamit, which had been founded there and it was flourishing. So back in 1982, Tzach for 23 days, he and his friends barricaded themselves in a memorial, which was an Israeli, in Yamid, which was an Israeli town in the Sinai Desert, and he did this in an attempt to stop Israel from giving Sinai back to Egypt. Now, Agnegbi, I remember when he was involved and he was arrested, he, uh, he now is a minister, and he told the uh, Knesset he had been convinced that the peace agreement with Egypt would mean the end of Israel because we would be returning to indefensible borders. And he said, when his protests failed back in 1982, he felt personally distressed and concerned. However, and here's the key point, several weeks later, an order came to him to report for reserve duty for the first Lebanon war, he didn't think twice that he wouldn't go. Now, the protesters are opposed to what the government is trying to do, but they should take a cue from someone like Hagnegbi that he felt deeply betrayed by the government but he still saw the state and the people of Israel as worthy of defending from their enemies. The, uh, the founder of the, uh, of the movement that eventually came under the, the Cherut, under Menachem Begin, the founder of the movement was Jabotinsky, and he famously said, I will fight that the state of Israel it come into existence, and if the state of Israel that comes into existence is a socialist fight, I will fight. I will fight by all democratic means to change it from socialism to capitalism. The bottom line was the existence of the state of Israel. Now the same thing is true today. Uh, when I came to Israel, it was a socialist government. And obviously I'm not going into detail now, but living under socialism was, was painful. I came from the United States, the, the, the prime capitalist country in the world. I came in 1969 to live in a socialist country 
and a socialist economy, but it was a Jewish state. And that's why I came. And in 1977, the socialists were kicked out of power. Uh, the Likud, the Cheirut, and the liberals took over. And since then, we have had a non-socialist government, which has its own problems. Uh, the Israeli government leads, uh, <laughs> leads not, lead, is not the kind of government I particularly would care for now. But it's not a socialist government. So you come and you live in the state of Israel, but the existence of the Jewish state is the primary thing. And we have to do what we can to improve the state of Israel. And that is our job. It's the first Jewish state in 2,000 years, and it's foreign to our generation to have the responsibility for its maintenance. So even if you don't like some of the things that the government is doing, and indeed there are things which I don't like that the government is doing, it doesn't mean you pick up and leave. There are, by the way, uh, I, I add as an aside, there are a lot of Israelis living in Berlin who don't like the way the Israeli government is run. So they ran away. So... Uh, that's very sad. You don't leave a country, a Jewish country, simply because you don't like the policy of the government. What you do, you do is stay and work to change that policy. To many people like myself, that's obvious. Running away is simply the wrong thing to do, and it shows, among other things, a lack of proper education of those people who are willing to run away. I think the, the primary problem here is that the educational system in Israel, uh, without going into details, is lacking, uh, I, don't know, I don't know if I should say it's lacking Zionism, but maybe it's lacking enough Jewish history to let the people know the importance of having a Jewish state in this day and age. If there would have been a Jewish state in 1939, there'd be a lot more Jews alive today. So the policies, policies of, a, of a Jewish government should be fought if you don't agree with it, but you fight from within. You don't pack your bags, leave the country, and say, I'm not interested in the fight anymore. That shows a tremendous uh, lacuna in the educational system here that, that results in people saying, if I don't like the government, I'm gonna leave the country. Uh, that is something that really, really uh, speaks poorly of the Israeli educational system. I'd be curious to know, there are no statistics, how many of those people who are saying they're going to leave the country because they don't like the government policies, how many of those people are people who came to live in Israel, who were educated elsewhere, or leave from other countries? How many of those, how many of those people are Israelis who were educated here, and now they're throwing in the towel and saying, the country is not to my liking, therefore I leave. 
that is simply wrong and is something that is happening now. As I said, there are no statistics that how many of those leaving were educated here and how many of those leaving are people who came on Aliyah. I'd be willing to bet that those who came in Aliyah, particularly those who came in my generation when it was a socialist country, are not willing or, or wanting to leave right now. They came because it's a Jewish country. It's not perfect, but like in a marriage, not everything is perfect. You don't get divorced the first time your wife cooks soup that you don't like. That's, that's not the definition of marriage. That's not the definition of citizenship. And that's not the definition of being Jewish. I'll be back after the break. Where can you get the inside news on Israel? At Israel News Talk Radio, we're dedicated to sharing Israel's inside story with the world by providing our listeners with news on Israeli politics, current affairs, and Israeli Jewish culture. The Israel News Talk Radio homepage also provides you, the listener, with useful information at your fingertips. With scrolling news headlines, weather, currency exchange, Shabbat candle lighting times, and so much more. Our radio programming is always accessible and on demand. We operate absolutely free of charge for everyone, everywhere. If you love what we do, partner with us now by becoming an Israel News Talk Radio supporter. With your support, you'll be inscribed on our Israel News Talk Radio Wall of Fame. There's nothing like us in the world. Be part of something great. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. You're back with Jay Shapiro. Although I generally do not speak about foreign affairs, I want to say a few words about the relationship between the state of Israel and the government of Australia. Because of news that uh, appeared this week, and first of all, there's a very interesting history. Back in uh, 1917, during the First World War, the British were attacking Palestine from uh, the direction of Egypt, and every attempt they made to enter the land, they were beaten back by the Ottoman government, uh, whose uh, government troops were led by German officers, and they tried several times disastrously to uh, enter Palestine through Gaza, and it wasn't until the Australians and an overnight maneuver that was really something very unusual and strategic. They traveled all night uh, through the desert when their horses were wanting water, and they attacked the city of Beersheba. They fought all day long, and only as the sun was going down did they capture Beersheba, Within a few days, they had captured Gaza, and within a month or two, they had captured the city of Jerusalem. So the the uh, conquering of the Palestine from the Ottomans by the Allied armies was essentially accomplished by Australians. And they have a, a number of memorials 
in the area of Beersheba that I visited, and I have some friends of my age or older who remember the Australian troops being uh, camped outside the city of Rehovot, and they said they were the friendliest of all the foreign troops. So our history with Australia is really, really a nice one. Now what's happened now is Australia has announced that it resumed using the term occupied Palestinian territory uh, of the area taken over by Israel in the Six-Day War. Under the previous Liberal Party government, Australia recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital and stopped using historically erroneous, erroneous terms like occupied Palestinian territories. But what's happened is the Labour Party came to power recently, last year, and has reversed both of these decisions. The Labour Party has determined it will refer to the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and the Gaza Strip as occupied Palestinian territories, and all settlements there, Israeli settlements, are illegal. The foreign minister, uh, Penny Wong, and other labor ministers are claiming this is a return to the practices of a past government. However, it is actually much more significant than that. It also appears at least in part the results of internal party politics in Australia. This, this, the government there argues that this change brings Australia into line with a number of Australia's allies, such as the European Union, United Kingdom, and New Zealand, but historically Australia's relationship with Israel has almost always been closer and more supportive than any of those other countries, no matter who was in power. So what's happened is that this new announcement by the Labour Government Australia is just the latest in a number of steps that this government has taken to distance itself from Israel since its election in May of last year. It has changed Australia's vote on several anti-Israel UN motions in a way that is less favorable to Israel, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> while it continues to oppose the UN taking Israel to the International Criminal Court and to make statements opposing the UN's discrimination against Israel, it has also refused to sign up to US-led joint statements on these matters. Now those there are those who write that there is an important lesson for Israel and its supporters about the reliability of international promises. For decades, critics of Israel have been pushing the idea that the Israelis should surrender territory in exchange for security guarantees from the United States. And this was the carrot dangled in front of Israel during the big push in the 1990s for Israel to surrender to Golan Heights, which of course Israel did not. To this day, there are supporters of the Palestinian cause who advocate stationing, uh, stationing American or international forces in Judea and Samaria in order to convince the Israelis 
that a Palestinian state there would not pose any danger. Now, the truth of the matter is that no government, no foreign government, can guarantee of any any kind. Governments change hands, guarantees become worthless, or the guarantee to station troops somewhere, but the, a new government can decide to cancel the guarantee or withdraw the troops. It's as simple as that. Now, the reversal of policy by the Australian government has to do with the concept of occupied Palestinian territories. History books and maps have for countless centuries called those areas by their correct historical names, Judea and Samaria. In fact, the very name Palestine has no historical basis. It was invented not by the people living there, but the Roman conquerors 2,000 years ago who destroyed the Jewish state at that time, and the Romans attempted to stamp out the country's Jewish identity by giving it the name Palestines. Palestine. These territories have never been part of any state of Palestine. Its inhabitants never spoke a Palestinian language. Nothing about their history or culture was distinctly Palestinian. To call these areas Judea and Samaria occupied Palestinian territories is an insult to the historical record. Now, a, a writer in the Jerusalem Post by the name of Stephen Flato wrote something very interesting in this regard, and I want to share it with the listeners. He said, if you want to find some generally occupied territory, look no further than the country of Australia. The, uh, the indigenous inhabitants of Australia known as the Aboriginals, had been living there for more than 60,000 years when the English explorer James Cook suddenly arrived in 1770 and claimed the country for Great Britain. He didn't ask the Aboriginals what they thought about the idea of being occupied by a foreign power. Racist European colonists regarded the indigenous peoples as inferior and considered their wishes unworthy of consideration. The British occupation of Australia got underway in 1788 with the creation of a penal colony there. Those British criminals were followed by illegal foreign settlers who seized the Aborigines' territory and expelled or murdered the residents when they got in their way. The white occupiers introduced various new diseases like smallpox, measles, tuberculosis. They took the lives of many locals. By 1900, the indigenous aboriginal population of 750,000 had been reduced to 93,000. Now, as the years went by, to, by the extent of the occupation widened, 
Australia is a huge country, nearly 3 million square miles, and the occupiers gradually occupied all of it. And, on top of all this, the mistreatment of the aboriginals continues to this day. Amnesty International reports the current Australian government policies still take away indigenous people's basic rights. People to abrasion, the younger generation of aboriginals share the deep trauma and anger from losing their lands and their culture and families. This is all noted by Amnesty International. Australia's indigenous kids are 24 times more likely to be locked up than their own non-indigenous classmates. Then the indigenous Australians are just 3% of the national population that they comprise 29% of the country's adult prison population. So, to call the Australians to refer to Judea and Samaria as occupied territory is an insult. Australia's Labour Party government ought to take a look in the mirror before hurling, hurling false and insulting accusations at the State of Israel. Incidentally, when the Jerusalem decision was made, uh, announced last year by the Australian government, the Israeli government reaction was appropriately strong. This time, however, while the Australian Jewish community has been overwhelmingly vocal and their disapproval of what their government has been doing, little has been reported from official Israeli sources. The Palestinian Authority, on the other hand, reacted quite quickly with Australian newspapers reporting earlier in August that the Palestinian Authority's foreign minister had released a statement welcoming what he called a significant and important development and calling on the Australian government to now recognize the state of Palestine without delay or hesitation. So, in a sense, this reflects the position of the Labour Party and its members. Now, we'd like to think that our government, the Israeli government, is seriously considering making public its undoubted reservations regarding Australia's action, because we have to discourage the Australian government from taking further counterproductive steps to such as recognizing a non-existent Palestinian state. So that is pretty much what's happening with the uh, Australian government. By the way, when you give the matter further thought, it uh, by labeling all these areas occupied Palestinian territory, the Australian government has now apparently predetermined something that is very much at the crux of any final status resolution, final borders. Now, the government of Australia seems unconcerned about this inconsistency, nor does it seem concerned about the offense of the Jewish community in Australia. We can now they're claiming that Judaism's holiest sites 
such as the Western Wall and the Temple Mount, are occupied Palestinian territory. So, uh, and it's illogical, of course, to describe the Gaza Strip as uh, occupied territory almost 19 years after Israel withdrew, withdrew completely from, from there. This is the first Australian government in nearly 50 years that's been dominated by the left wing of the Australian Labor Party. Now, it tries to present itself as centrist and responsible, but the party's left does expect some wins from its new control of the party. So, uh, interesting is what has happened uh, in Australia, and it's something I guess we have to keep our eye on it, and uh, we'll see what will happen, but the fact that uh, Australia now is recognizing occupied Palestinian territories, including the holiest parts of the Judaism, as a troubling, troubling uh, thing to happen. And uh, I want to conclude this uh, section of the program with uh, something that happened uh, in uh, the United States. It's something that's pretty much under the radar but I think it's important to uh, keep an eye on it. A Michigan state senator has apologized for joining a delegation of fellow Democrat politician on a tour of Israel several weeks ago. The state senator's name is Sylvia Santana, and according to the Dearborn Press and Guide newspaper, Santana received backlash because she visited Israel from members of the Arab Muslim community in her district, which includes Dearborn and Dearborn Heights. There are a lot of Arabs living in that part of uh, Michigan. At any rate, she wrote that uh, the, uh, it's come to my attention to my constituents specifically those in the Arab Muslim community, community that I recently visited Israel in my capacity as a state senator. This is a trip offered to the state lawmakers to learn more about Michigan's relation with, relationship with Israel. After speaking with my friends and members of the community, I recognize my presence on this trip has sparked anger and disappointment. Many in the Arab Muslim community here for this, I truly apologize Seek your forgiveness and hope you will understand that I had no malicious intent. There is no perfect combination of words that I can offer that truly reflects the feeling of my heart. My only goal was to learn about this region of our world and to improve my understanding of matters related to Michigan. So that is what the state senator wrote after visiting Michigan, uh, visiting Israel. And she went on further to say that she should have exercised a better discretion. Uh, so some of the newspapers uh, in the, in Michigan responded, and uh, some some uh, were positive, some were rather negative. The uh, the uh, a a one responded that a. A congressman 
even a state congressman doesn't have to apologize for taking a trip to a free country. There are other states in the Muslim world that engage in apartheid against Palestine. You did nothing wrong, according to some respondents, and yet the anti-Semitism is rife in various communities. Israel has a right to exist, and you, as an American lawmaker have every right to go there, visit that country, which, by the way, Israel has strong relations with Michigan. Various businesses uh, do business uh, there and here, so there is a profit to be made by the relationship between Michigan and Israel. So, uh, uh, although there are those who felt in the Muslim community in Michigan that there is no excuse for a uh, legislator to visit Israel, uh, I think that, uh, that, that uh, I think, I think it's, it's just all politics, no matter how you slice it. It's interesting that one of the people who agreed with the, uh, with the state senator, somebody says President Biden himself refuses to meet with Israel's prime minister. So, uh, and the, uh, and they claim that, uh, some of the writers said that uh, some are speaking now, calling out for reduction of military aid to better to uh, deter Israel's expansionism. There were responses to the visit of the state center to Israel that were both positive and negative. And by the way, that the saying that the Democratic president himself refuses to meet with Israel's prime minister is old news since Biden has invited our prime minister to come visit the United States. All this is politics. At any rate, I just thought this is something that's way under the radar. The Michigan Senator apologizing for joining a delegation trip of uh, lawmakers to Israel. I'll be back after the break. You think you can get real news about Israel from major news sources located far away from Israel? Think again. Get it from the source. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're back with Jay Shapir. And I want to say a few words about uh, Palestinian anti-Semitism. The word anti-Semitism was uh, invented in the middle of the 19th century by a German anti-Semite, and uh, up to that time there was Jew hatred, but the word anti-Semitism was the new word for hatred of Jews. Now it's interesting that the Arabs, most of them, are also Semites. Now what's happened in there is now something called Palestinian anti-Semitism, and actually, the Palestinian anti-Semitism comes from the very top of the Palestinian leadership. For many years, the President Mahmoud Abbas of the Palestinian Authority has, try, has tried to adopt the guise of a moderate, but what's happened is, over the last few years, particularly last year, he's pretty much done away with that mask. In 2018, addressing a meeting of the Palestinian National Council in Ramallah, 
Hamas placed responsibility for hatred against Jews on Jews themselves, claiming that Jewish hostility against Jews is not because their religion, uh, uh, all hostility against Jews is not because of the religion, of course, but rather their social function related to banks and interests. In other words, people are anti-Semites because the Jews are bankers. <clears throat> Last year, standing alongside the German Chancellor at a news conference in Berlin, Muhammad Abbas claimed that Israel has committed 50 holocausts against the Palestinian people. Now, there is an IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, and what the uh, head of the Palestinian Authority said falls under the definition of anti-Semitism. However, the reaction to these statements is in stark contrast how other prominent examples of anti-Semitism would have been treated. Now there is classic anti-Semitism, which has been used throughout Jewish history, leading to the massacre of millions of Jews, was met with an almost apologetic response when the word was used by the head of the Palestinian Authority. In reaction, the European External Action Service the European Union's Foreign Service said in a statement that such rhetoric will only play into the hands of those who do not want a two-state solution, which Abbas has repeatedly advocated. And they further said that anti-Semitism is not only a threat for Jews, but a fundamental menace to our, to our open and liberal societies. Now, the, the, this, this response the, uh, treats these hate-filled words as if they were unfortunate yet legitimate political maneuvering. Then, in an extraordinary sleight of hand, the whole issue of anti-Semitism is deflected onto open and liberal societies, the West, meaning that's a problem for Western countries but apparently not for the Palestinians themselves. In other words, anti-Semitism is a problem that the Western countries have to deal with, but the Palestinians themselves don't have to deal with. So this is a problem that many have with Palestinian anti-Semitism. It's not considered the same as anti-Semitism in the West is thought, at least in part, to be just part of the politics of our conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians. So, it, 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 I guess you can define it as a, a form of soft bigotry of low expectations. You don't expect the Palestinians to be nicer about the Jews. Parts of the uh, international community do not expect the same behavior from the Palestinians that expects of others. Now the truth of the matter is, not expecting the Palestinians to behave 
like other nations and other peoples is a form of bigotry bordering on racism because it allows the Palestinian Authority and its leaders to continue with their incitement and their anti-Semitism while continuing to welcome Abbas as a legitimate leader. Rarely do members of the international community strongly condemn Abbas's anti-Semitic comments. They, uh, this is true by especially when they're made locally rather than on an international stage. Nobody pushes Abbas publicly to end his anti-Semitism. For example, they should make him stop anti-Semitism by making this a condition for giving aid and assistance to the Palestinians. So far too many people see this as merely part and parcel of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and believe it's rooted in injustice. They see it as part of the war between the Palestinians and Israel. The, uh, the primary distance I'm sorry, the primary difference is that Palestinian anti-Semitism is societally endemic and leads to massive and ongoing bloodshed on, on, in the conflict with Israel. The bottom line is anti-Semitism is anti-Semitism, and all forms of hate against Jews and Israel must be counted with vigor. There should be no hierarchy of bigotry. The international community must treat the anti-Semitism and incitement against Jews that emanates from within or by the Palestinian Authority as it would it came from a white supremacist or a neo-Nazi source. Now, it, this would send a new and demanding message to the Palestinian leadership that there is zero tolerance for anti-Semitism and it will be shunned and lose any aid and assistance if they don't stop their anti-Semitism. Now, it could lead, probably won't, to an end to Palestinian state-sponsored anti-Semitism and if it did, many lives will be saved and peace will be closer to realization but I don't see this happening in the immediate or, in the, or even in the distant offing. There is no hierarchy of anti-Semitism, and it turns out that one of the most vigorous voices of anti-Semitism is the Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas, and he is not being condemned for it, which I think is wrong. Now, I'd like to finish off my program with a number of small items that are way, way below the headlines, way, way below the radar, but I think they should interest the listeners. First of all, I'd like to say a word about the number of lawyers there are in Israel. Turns out that Israel is a world leader in the number of attorneys per capita. It's one of the factors leading to overloaded courts and long legal wait times. The uh, amount of civil cases open in Israel per 100,000 inhabitants is almost twice the average amount 
of cases open in European states. The standard of judges in Israel is only a third of the average number of judges per 100,000 inhabitants in European states. So the result is that in Israel, there are packed schedules for judges, prolongation of proceedings, with an endless legal system, especially if they were to be detained until the end of the judgment. More than 77,000 attorneys were eligible to vote in the Israeli Bar Association elections in June of this year. The practicing lawyers made up 0.82% of the population here in Israel, or that is one lawyer for about every 120 people, or 820 lawyers per 100,000 people. Now, is European states had an average of 164 lawyers per 100,000 inhabitants, and in the latest report, in 2020, Israel had 739 professional judges, or almost eight judges for 100,000 people, according to the Council of Europe. On the average, European states had 18 judges per 100,000 people. So, uh, so they had 18, Israel has eight. Israel was a highly litigious country with the highest numbers of lawyers per capita, overwhelming number of claims filed. In the year 2018, some 854,000 new claims and appeals were filed, which is roughly one claim per 10 people in Israel. And that is a really big number. So I want to go on to another uh, item not related to Israeli lawyers. Again, it's something that's under the radar, but I think that the listeners should find it of interest. The state cannot be sued for, for, for failure to protect a bus rider from a firebomb terrorist attack. According to the High Court of Israel several weeks ago, in 2021, a naked bus driver won a lawsuit against the state over an incident all the way back in 1996 in which the employee, the bus driver, drove one of 250 buses serving a 15,000 people strong Passover rally in support of the Jewish community in Hebron. While the Israeli army and security forces claimed to establish foot patrols and to have heavily secured the road junctions where the incident occurred, the applicant's bus was struck by a Molotov cocktail. The driver sued the Egged Bus Company, that is the people he worked for, and he sued the state after he developed post-traumatic stress disorder from the incident. Uh, although he uh, began to receive disability benefits from the state, the driver argued that when he accepted the contract, he should have provided special armored buses for the event, given the high tension at the time in Hebron. The, the driver argued that the state was negligent, 
because it hasn't provided sufficient security. This included the decision to lift a curfew the morning of the attack and neither to divert traffic nor to establish a curfew after the attack. Now, the claim was filed back in 2012, was rejected, an appeal was accepted by the district court against the state, but the, there was no case against Egg the company itself. Then the, uh, the high court justice at that time noted that Egg was still in the process of fitting buses with protection against rocks and Molotov cocktails. Now, the IDF's tactical and operational decision made it the, the discretion of the army. The actions of the security forces amounted to negligence, according to the claim, and one needed to be careful about judging ongoing operations in hindsight. Now, the event actually occurred decades ago, 1996. It wasn't now possible to determine the correct procedure. The, uh, it's hard to believe that in every terrorist incident, the court will be required to examine allegations of this or that omission, such as what was the intelligence material known at the time, and about the sector, was the intelligence material distributed to the relevant parties, why was the guard post at the junction not manned, why did you not increase forces in the sector, why not block the junction, why was the military force not skilled, why was the force later arriving, and so forth. Questions of this kind, according to the court, are a matter for military investigation, and they at the core of the military profession. Civil tort claims are not suitable for a war situation, according to the court. That's the bottom line in this decision. <coughs> the application of tort laws in these situations may lead to legal distortions and the payment of huge compensation by the state. That's what the judge said. In other words, we are in a war and you cannot bring a case in a civil court because of damage you received in a war. That's what the court said. I don't know what it's like in other countries, but this is the decision for the state of Israel. And I find that this should be of interest to the listeners. And finally, on a different subject, there are things that happen in history that turn out to be turning points. These are moments that redefine relationships between countries. What happened was that the energy minister of Israel, Israel Katz, went to Abu Dhabi representing Israel as his energy minister. The, uh, this was the first visit of its kind since the establishment of the current government in Israel, and it's not just a testament to the changing dynamics of the Middle East, but it's also hope for a region that's long been marred by differences. Now, what happened was, several years, the Abraham Accords were signed with several of these countries and Israel. In a sense, 
And it's, it, it's ushered in an era of cooperation and understanding. Now, they what they've done, these agreements, is they've broken barriers. They're not just pieces of paper, but they're symbols of peace, prosperity, and progress between and among the countries. So, the... Uh, our, our energy minister met with the Emirati Minister of Technology and Industry and also colleagues from Jordan, the ministers of water, energy, and the environment. So the truth of the matter is that a meeting like that is not just a diplomatic formality, but it's a step toward realizing a strategic regional project electricity and for water. This initiative, which envisions Israel water in exchange for Jordanian electricity as a testament to the innovative spirit of our countries and a commitment to mutual growth. It's really important. The, the, uh, what's going to happen is water from the Mediterranean Sea will undergo a desalinization process in Israel using the most advanced technology in the world. Now, the, this, this represents Israel's progress in the field, but it's a sustainable solution to water scarcity. Once desalinated, the water will be flowed to Jordan. In other words, uh, seawater will be desalinated in Israel. It will be delivered to Jordan. And this ensures that Jordanians have access to water, usable water. So the, uh, the, this is a fantastic thing. So the, uh, what's going to happen also is that the United Arab Emirates are going to construct a solar farm in Jordan, which will harness sunlight of the region, which is abundant, Converting into clean, sustainable energy, this electric electricity of a, full, a solar farm in Jordan will then be sent to Israel. That'll help Israel meet our energy needs and reducing our carbon footprint. So this is a benefit that can, can come out of our agreements with the Arab nations in our area. And that is good news. Until next time, Jay Shapiro, sign up.